Dr. Livingstone, I presume. By the time reporter Henry Morton Stanley uttered those words to David Livingstone in 1871, he'd already been looking for the British explorer for two years. A year and a half later, Livingstone would be dead, and though his body now rests in Westminster Abbey, his heart was removed. It sits today as it has for more than a century, buried beneath a baobab tree in Zambia, a country itself at the very heart of Africa. Today, Zambia is almost as wild as it was then, and on this show, a modern journalist traces his way to a British-style safari camp where the ghost of Livingstone's expeditions and the effects of colonialism, ecotourism, and poaching all dance. Welcome back to the Get Lost Podcast. It is the Cabin Fever edition. <laughs> As I am joined here by the executive editor of Nobleman Magazine, he is sort of a, a, a mystic figure that I met on a recent trip to California. Uh, one of those sage-type travelers that feels like he's been everywhere in the world and probably has a story about each place. Uh, his name is Yves Lesseur, and he joins us now. Welcome, Yves. Hey, thank you, Joe. Thank you for having me. Oh, absolutely. Thanks for making time, man. No, you listen. Well, first of all, we have all a little bit of a time now, but uh, I don't think I've ever been referred to as a mystic figure, but thank you. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, I vividly like remember meeting you in this sort of hotel lobby, and I got this sort of like weird, like sage vibe, like, oh. Oh, thank you. Yeah. I don't know this guy, but I'm going to because he seems like someone I can learn from. Oh, thanks. I appreciate it. It was fun. It was a fun trip, actually. It was, yeah, for sure. It was like uh, only a few weeks ago, but one of the last outings uh, that I had before everyone sort of had to go into isolation for COVID-19. Exactly. Um, So tell us a little bit about about your background, where you're from, where you're at now, and what you're doing while everyone is stuck inside. Well, uh, my background is uh, is one of those weird backgrounds I've uh, I've been through. Um, you know, I'm originally from Europe. Uh, I was born in in Paris and then raised in Canada, and then uh, I came to the U.S. in the uh, early '80s and to try to make a living as uh, um, so somewhere in the in the theater world and my uh, on the ground uh, on the uh, I'm sorry my um, my degree is in drama, and my master's is in musical theater. If you if you know anything about that, so that makes a weird uh, combination of uh, not so much great skills to get a job. So ended up writing for a living. <laughs> oh yeah, right. <laughs> so um, so I think that that's been the kind of the career. So I've been on both on the publishing side. On I've been uh, in advertising agencies as well, and then for the last three years, I've been at uh, Nobleman Magazine. Why do I have this sort of mental image of you coming in with like a theater troupe? And then- <laughs> well, there was a little bit of that, right? It was just kind of really funny about, you know, all the theater kids, you know, the, the old glee image is really true. And we were all a little bit different. And I think that to stay in that business anyway, and, and I got a lot of friends. I'm in my early 50s now, but I have a lot of friends who are still in the industry and they're still pursuing the dream. And... um Early in my twenties, I realized I really didn't want to live on anybody's couch, so I had to make a living somehow. <laughs> you wanted and, your own couch. Yeah, I wanted my own couch, my own house. You know, there's no uh, what's the old saying? There's no nobility in poverty. Yeah, just, yeah. It just, it just sucks, and so 
uh, and so started to to write, and and uh, here I am now. So tell me a little bit about noblemen. Uh, speaking of uh, no nobility on uh, in poverty, but what is Nobleman Magazine, and, and how can people read that? Yeah, Nobleman Magazine is a luxury publication, kind of dedicated to men. Uh, even though our readership now is increasingly uh, comprised of women as well, uh, but we uh, we have all the, the the favorite subjects of guys that are somewhat affluent. You know, cars, boats house, cigars, watches, and all of that. And then my role in that is to try to give it a voice and making sure that we don't just talk about, uh, you know, watches and boats and, and cars because there's only so many of those. And I don't think there's anything very interesting to say about these things. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> yeah. eventually you got to write, you got to talk about something else. And that really was my mission that Noble Men to, to kind of, you know, steer the voice towards, you know, something that's relevant and that's compelling. That's going to make people think a little bit. So you're doing like travel type pieces and um, humanitarian or human interest type pieces and that kind of thing as well. And Correct. That's, that's awesome. And I guess it's great too, because that audience, those are actually people who sometimes can really go out and help an issue. Yeah. You know, I think that the one thing that I found over, you know, in the last three years or so is that you can't, put people in boxes, you know, something that you see from the outside, you think you got a kind of a, a beat on what they are, who they are, and you realize it's not at all that until you talk to them. A little bit of, like you said, you know, I don't know this guy, but I'm going to find out. I'm going to get to know him a little bit. I think that the magazine serves a little bit as a conduit towards that. Did you have an experience when you were in theater that, that was similar? Where you had a first impression of somebody that turned out to be completely different than oh, I've had, I've had a, I've had a ton of, of experiences in there that you know you meet somebody especially you know if you go you come down to to L.A. and there's a lot of famous people everywhere and then you meet someone and you realize that well this is not at all who these people are you know and I think that through the magazines especially that's happened quite a bit you know I've interviewed a bunch of celebrities and, uh, and you, you have an image that you see either on TV or in film. And, or you've read a piece somewhere, and then you realize that these people are, are actually people. <laughs> they have they have emotions, and they have thoughts and, and ideas and philosophies. And I think if you sit down and take a minute, uh, you'll find something different than what you expected. Yeah, I think that's that's true with everybody. Do you have a celebrity example that you feel okay talking about? Yeah, I just uh, I interviewed uh, Sam Rockwell for uh, the last cover of the magazine, mm-hmm. and. Uh, and we had sort of kind of two days with him. On a Friday, it was the photo shoot, and I was going to meet him on Monday for the interview. Mm-hmm. And then he arrived Friday straight from New York, and he was just in not a great mood. You know, the, the, the whole thing, he had just been traveling. He was tired. He didn't quite know the publication either, so he didn't really know us. Mm-hmm. Um, and his publicist was pretty gung-ho on making sure it went their way. And so the shoot was a little tense the whole time. You know, they didn't they didn't want video, and usually we do a little you know behind the scene video pieces. They didn't want any of that, and so it just went really sideways the whole night. And and I remember leaving thinking like, wow, this is going to be terrible on Monday. You know, I don't want to sit with this guy. Yeah. And then on Monday, Monday comes around, and we're meeting at the Chateau Marmont. For those of you who, are, who don't know LA, it's pretty famous in Hollywood for you know, celebrity hosting and all that. And he turned out to be a prince of a guy. He came in and he apologized. He said, man, that was a, it was a weird day Friday, wasn't it? And I said, <laughs> yes, and yeah, it was. And we ended up chatting for two and a half hours. And uh, just the kind of guy you would sit down and have a beer with. Oh, um, that's cool. So all of a sudden, you know, then he reveals, you know, a lot of stuff that you kind of don't know about. And you see the personality. It's not just a guy that's on on screen that's kind of untouchable. It's just a guy who just happened to be pretty fortunate to do what he does. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's relatable to a lot of people, but I found that to be true as well. Every now and then I'll get a chance to interview uh, somebody that's well known for a story. And like, uh, let's see, about a year ago, I interviewed Megan Fox. Oh, okay. And she, I didn't really know what to think, but you look at, at one of these like Hollywood uh, starlets and, and you have all these like preconceptions of, you know, they're going to be very into themselves and this and that. And it ended up like she had done some background on me and it was just a Q and a for the travel channel. It was like, no, you know, no big thing. Yeah. Um, but she done some research. And at that time I had recently broken my arm 
so the first thing out of her mouth was like, hey, how's your arm? How'd you break it? Blah, blah, blah. And, you know? Yeah, it's nice to see that somebody has interest because I think that they go through the ringer. And when I interviewed Sam, it was right at the beginning of award season. Yeah. And it, they threw a gauntlet of interviews of all kinds for all kinds of publications and some famous and not so famous. And so I think you don't realize how many of those things you do, you know, in a given week. Oh, yeah. And then the first impression that you get might not be the real thing because, you know, there's a lot of background there that all of a sudden, you know, you're, you're, you're thinking like, wow, this guy is kind of an ass. But, you know, he's done 20 of those within the last 10 hours. Yeah. So and, maybe, and as a journalist, you're like, this is like a big deal for you. You're like, oh, Sam oh yeah. like, man, this is hey, like a, your week is revolving around this. Right. You know? <laughs> it's, so, our, it's our cover, man. I'm so excited. And that's the thing. I was really excited to meet him, too, because, you know, I love his work. I love the way, you know, he acts. And uh, and then this happens on Friday. You're like, wow, this is going to be terrible. And and. Uh, but like I said, he turned out to be a prince of a guy, very open, very honest, very forthcoming, which was really great. Well, that's awesome. Uh, <clears throat> while we leverage that, let's talk a little bit about a, a trip you went on for Nobleman uh, pretty recently. And this is something we briefly talked about uh, when we met each other in California. But I wanted you to sort of take our listeners on a journey. Uh, you're going to go with Eve. You're going to get on a plane. You're going to go to Africa. Zambia and tell us what Zambia is like. Well, well, I think that the, the first thing is first is that uh, for those who have never been to Africa, it's a long trip, uh, you know, especially coming from Los Angeles uh, because you have to fly to New York. From New York, you go to Johannesburg, South Africa. From South Africa, you go to Lukasa, which is in Zambia. From, from Lukasa, you take a small plane to Mfui, which is where the preserve that I went to. Uh, which is called the Bush Camp Company. Uh, so it's a long trip. It's about, you know, all, all told with all the, you know, back and forth, it's about 30 hours. So your clock is a little kind of off the minute you land. And we landed uh, in M4A probably in the middle of the day. I think it was probably 2 o'clock in the afternoon. And uh, something I wrote in the piece that, uh, that really struck me and I mean, I live in California where sunsets are, are really common and beautiful and right by the ocean. And, um, the sun over there looked different. How so? Uh, it, 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 there's one of those weird, if you ever seen the movie Out of Africa with uh, Meryl Streep and Robert Redford, it's that, there's a glow. It almost looks like somebody would put a filter on Instagram about these beautiful shots that you see on Instagram that people have filtered and they're just perfect. Well, it's like that in real life. The sun is glowing and the trees look different. They just, the only word that I could find that really kind of did adjust it, it was majestic. It was, it was, it was regal. Uh, and I think that that sort of kind of set my mind to that I was in a very different place. And it smelled different, it looked different, it felt different. And I really felt like, like you said, and like you, Joe, I mean, you, you've traveled everywhere, you've been everywhere. You know, so, so do I. And, but it was the first time that I traveled somewhere that I felt like I was really out of my element. I was oh, somewhere that I, that I didn't know at that's all. That's cool. That is cool. Which was, which was really, really cool. That's the feeling of, like, if, if you remember the original, like, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Correct. Like, you know, when they go through the, the chocolate tunnel and it's like everything's crazy. You come out on the other side and you're now, you've got this majestic regal glowing sun the smells the people everything is just totally different from france or, or new york or la um, and you're there with what purpose yeah you know i was going there to uh um, to do a story on this uh luxury uh resort which is called the bush Camp company we're lovely people and it's a lovely resort but it's right in the middle of the bush Zambia is in the south, um, kind of south of the country a little bit, a little bit up north from uh, from South Africa, but it's, you know it's kind of in the middle, sort of the middle of the of the continent, and um, and it's one of those few countries that has not been overly touched by tourism or anything like because you know if you go to safari and whether you go to a hunting safari or, or photo safari, which 
uh, Zambia is a photo safari. I'm not a big hunting guy. So, uh, but if you go, they'll tell you to go to Botswana or to go to uh, Mozambique or, or South Africa, really. Um, so Zambia is kind of one of those destinations that people don't go very much to. So there's a feeling of it's not been touched very much by, uh, let's be frank, by the white men. So, um, so it was very different for them. Yeah. If you look on the map, uh, Zambia, as he says, is, is sort of in the middle. Um, and if you can think about Africa, like uh, just, as the continent goes in the middle, it's very, very, very dense green jungle, like the, the thickest of jungles up in the Congo. And then you kind of go south and there's still a lot of jungle and it, and it starts to kind of taper off. And by the time you get to Botswana, which is the next country down from Zambia, there's a lot of plains, grasslands and some deserts and stuff. So the terrain is is really wild and out there. Um, so you're you're at this camp, or you you're throwing. Well, let's take it back. I'm I'm bouncing around a little bit, but no worries. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you land. You're at the airport, and and describe the scene that's there. Well, f- first of all, it's not LAX or JFK or any of the big airports. It's a small. It's about the size of my house. And, uh, but the one thing that you notice right away, uh, there's armed guards. This is not the TSA, by the way. Um, armed guards with AK-47 that look very, very serious. Okay. And uh, so my, my, uh, my way of deflecting anxiety and nervousness is I make jokes. You know, that's kind of what I do. Okay. And, uh, you know, so I, I might have made a crack or something, and then a couple of people looked at me very seriously like, this is not the time. Oh. Um, so I'm like, uh, okay. Um, and then they kind of guided us through the, uh, you know, the custom area, which is also very, very thorough. All the baggage got open, everything got searched. Um, so there was a feeling like, wow, we're not in Kansas anymore. You know, it's, it, it's really kind of a little bit different. And, uh, and then by the time that we got into our, you know, our truck to get to the camp, which is about an hour away from the airport. Um, you, you do realize security and all those things, it's not invasive in any way. Uh, and we think sometimes it is, and we, we have everybody complains about the TSA at the airports here, but guess what? We, we, we're in a good place. Yeah, uh, these guys aren't some, looking for your uh, water bottle. No, 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 no. They're looking for a lot of bad things, and you know, the, you know, I'll get into that a little bit about poaching and all of those things that they're looking for arms and drugs and contraband and all of that i mean that that's really where they're at uh so so we get through finally and it was you know we were traveling with another four or five journalists um which turned out to be lifelong friends which i think that that's something that you and i you know can really connect on is that those press trips sometimes you know there's always a couple that you don't i mean so, so much that you don't get along with but you don't have anything to say to yeah yeah that's true um, on that trip, and it was a long trip, it was a 10-day trip too, so which never really happens for a press trip. Um, so we all became friends and we've stayed friends to this day. So I think that, so we all got on that truck, you know, and it was kind of a rickety, you know, Land Rover that had seen better days. And, and we all kind of looked at each other and it was really silent. You know, nobody was really talking to anything about anything. We were just kind of looking at the sides, which was, once again, you know, beautiful. But there was really a, there was a feeling of nervousness in the air. Yeah. Uh, we all felt a little uneasy about, okay, what the hell did I get myself into? And, um, and then you finally get towards, you know, closer to the camp. And then in the road, it, it, you know, a road is a generous term. Um, <laughs> it, you know, it's a, it's a plot of dirt with a bunch of rocks and thank God we're in an uh, you know, SUV of sorts. And, um, but yeah, the, by the time we got to, to the resort, um, everybody was tired. I think a little bit it was, people were nervous. And, and uh, so that was our arrival at the resort. And then by the time we got there though, um, the hospitality was unbelievable. Yeah. They were the most welcoming people you've ever met. Uh, the friendliest staff. And there's something I write in the piece about, there's a juice they have there. Like, Think of a combination of orange, uh, passion fruit. I don't know what it is. This is the best juice I've ever had in my whole life. Is it like the, the welcome drink, so to speak? Yeah, that is the welcome drink. And you're like, oh, my God, you know, I got to bring this back home somehow. 
Um, it was the best juice I've ever had. And I know, I don't know if it's because we were thirsty or because it was really hot or anything of like that, but it was just the, the, the welcome was just fantastic. And then all of a sudden now the, the, the nervousness that we all felt, um, the, the anxiety, I think that we felt about being in a place where, Oh, look at that. There's a rhino right there. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, I think it, it kind of ended pretty quickly. To give you guys a bit of an idea of how remote this is, I'm looking at Bush Camp Company online, and they're like a set of photos of elephants walking through the main reception area. Oh, yeah, they're famous for that, by the way. There, there is a, a certain time of the year, and that was not the time that we were, uh, we were there. We were there in August, and uh, I think it's closer to October where uh, the elephants, literally, it's part of their migration, and they go through the lobby of that resort. To their drinking patch and and it's you know they show you a ton of pictures about it in videos and you're like oh wow you know what if the elephant decided that you know this is not a good day today I'm just gonna go veer to the right through the the office and and apparently they don't they just kind of straight through you know 10 15 elephants just going walking right through the lobby and going to the straight to their patch that's totally totally <laughs> insane so you get there and there's there's the welcome drink which it, <laughs> Any of you guys that travel will know that that almost all all of these like far out destinations and lodges they have some sort of welcome drink that that you have. <laughs> You're convinced it's, it's the greatest thing you've ever had. You don't know what's in it, uh, but you drink it anyway. I mean, it could be oh, like yeah. hallucinogenic drugs. <laughs> oh no, there's no problem about that. Yeah, yeah. Who, who knows? We don't we don't ever know. We just drink it, and, and from there on, it like sets the tone. Um. But describe the uh, the lodge itself and and what these elephants walk through at times and, and sort of the the area around the lodge. The the thing with this lodge is that first of all you're in the middle of the bush like you really are in the middle of absolutely nowhere. Uh, you know elephants and wildebeest and baboons everywhere, which are you know they, they look innocent but they're really not. Oh, the baboons are straight up terrifying. Oh, yeah. It's something I've learned the hard way in the morning. So I'll go through that in a minute. But um, it's an unbelievably five-star luxury property. It's, uh, uh, it's beautiful. It's, um, everybody's got their own little hut that you, that you live in. Uh, there's a really beautiful lobby with this restaurant that's there that's, you know, that's uh, open air and it's wonderful and the abundant food and, and the service is just, it, it, you got to remember also this is a British sort of influence uh, society there in terms of, you know, the serving and all of that. So all the waiters are, it's white gloves and, and white jackets and, and all of that that, you, you really expect in a five-star property and then the huts are just unbelievably beautiful with, you know, your own private air conditioning and the beautiful bed and all that. And in the midst of all this luxury, you really are in the middle of the jungle. And so it, it, there's a real dichotomy between how luxurious the place is and where you are. Um, but as far as the, the Bushkin company, I think that if I had one place to recommend anybody to go, in Africa that would be there. I mean, they're lovely people. Uh, they run an unbelievably great organization. Uh, and it's it's as comfortable as you can ever get by being in the middle of nowhere. That sounds fascinating. It must be a weird feeling to walk out of your, you know, your own private hut. And then you're, you're literally just, you know, in Africa, you're nowhere near the top of the food chain there. Oh, so. no, no, no. Yeah. I, th I think you see it too. Yeah. Like I, about the baboons, you know, in the morning, I, open the drapes the first morning and then I look on my balcony, which is, you know, like five feet away and there's probably 40 baboons on that balcony. No, no, no. And I'm like, I'm like, oh. And they didn't look overly friendly, you know, and- uh, <laughs> No, they're not. So, <laughs> there's something about monkeys too that freaks me out for some reason. And um, so I kind of look and I slowly, it was like in the movie, I slowly closed the drapes. Yeah, yeah. Just yeah. so to make sure. No. I'm like, well, I mean, you know, outbreak or something. Yeah, so it was crazy. I, uh, in college, I worked at the zoo here in Memphis, and one of the things they told us was <laughs> the most dangerous animal at the zoo uh, is the gorilla, and then after that is the baboons. Oh, they told us the same exact thing, by the way. Oh, no, really? It was, yeah, he said, you know, don't think because it's a baboon that it's, you know, they're ferocious. Yeah. And, you know, 
you kind of find yourself thinking like, oh, I mean, how bad can it be? And then you realize they have numbers on their side. Yeah. They're everywhere. I mean, they're literally everywhere. And they tell you there's little notes, you know, please make sure you close your door, lock him, because they'll find a way to open the door. <laughs> well, I'm just like, okay, well, nobody told me I was an episode of, you know, something. Um, it, it, was a, it was a weird feeling. You said something about not being at the top of the food chain. Uh, you realize really quickly that you're not when you're there. Yeah, yeah, that's so true because there's like 40 monkeys with uh, fangs outside. And by the way, if they get angry at you, they'll rip your balls off. Oh, yeah, that's it. That, that's, you know, there's no, they don't care that I'm from Newport Beach. You know, they don't give a damn about that. No, no, they don't care. Uh, so talk us through about like, what you do that morning. You wake up, and I guess you're going to head out on safari. We're going to head out on safari, but before that, of course, we have this lovely breakfast, and, and the food is – and I'm not sure it's because we were very hang- hungry, but the, the food was delicious. And, and, and then we, had, we were assigned one guide uh, for the entire duration of the, the, the trip. And uh, this young man was uh, unbelievable. Do you remember his um, name? Yeah, Daniel. Daniel. Uh, and he, um, he was just, first of all, he knew everything. It's like having a computer yet in a living body. He knew everything about, you know, he'd been in that bush since he was a little kid. Um, you, you know, you get in the truck and they give you the, the, the typical safety briefing, like, well, please keep your hands and legs inside a vehicle at all times except for the fact that if you don't you might get eaten so so you pay attention really quickly you know it's it's something that you realize like oh okay and then you know you get in the you get in the in the truck and all of us there and all of us with cameras and then they tell you listen if you some reason you because it's all open air you know uh, wagons and if you drop your phone your camera you do not go pick it up you know we're gonna we're gonna stop. The rangers got to get out with a gun, and then making sure there's nothing there, and then maybe we'll get it back. So that's serious. It's serious stuff, you know. And uh, inside the vehicles, you're really really safe because the animals have gotten used to um, those those trucks going around, and and they've, but the drivers and the guys are also very very careful about where they go. Uh, it sounds like a it goes without saying, but they know the bush so well that they know their areas. They have to be careful. And first of all, their first priority is always and forever shall be to not disturb the animals. Um, they're awfully protective of 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 what's there, both from a, a, a terrain point of view and then from an animal point of view. Uh, I say something in the piece that I was never really a you know, and I was not a staunch animal rise. You know, I'm not one of those guys that, oh my God, the poor animals. You know, I was never like that. When I came back, I became one of those guys a little bit. Like I, I, I felt a, a weird feeling of protection for these animals that are, that are, you know, you see some animals at the zoo and it's one thing, but you see them in the wild and they're so unbelievably beautiful. You know, the fur is clean. I mean, you know, everything about it is, is unbelievable. So I think that there's a feeling of protection for that. And so when you start to get on those safaris and, and you see your first elephant, and first of all, you're, you're gobsmacked. You know, elephants are so much bigger than you think. You know, you're like, oh my God. And they're really next to you. Yeah. They're literally like a foot away from the truck, you know, and they're kind of looking at the truck, you're looking at them, and, and then they realize that they can literally bump that truck easily without thinking and just kind of roll this over. Uh, but there's a there's a... There's a, a feeling like they know that they're there and they know they're not going to be disturbed, so they're not aggressive in any way. And that goes for every animal that we saw. We saw over there. That's incredible. So you're, you're like nose to nose with nose to trunk with an elephant. Oh, yeah. And it, it's crazy because, you know, you, like you said, you know, you, if you've been to a zoo, you know, there's a gate and there's a, there's a, there's a there's space between you and the animals for obvious reasons. But over there, there's really not. You know, if somebody decides, you know, if that, if that animal, whoever that may be, decide that he's having a bad day, you're going to have a bad day too. You're right there. And, but I think because the guys know these animals so well, they know what not to do. And they know that, you know, if you stay still, there's a chance that nothing's ever going to happen. And, and they kind of really kind of coach you through it. And I think that you're, and the other thing too, that 
goes without saying is that you're in awe of the whole scene. Mm-hmm. You know, you're looking around and there's, you know, there's a pack of giraffe. I mean, when, when's the last time you saw a pack of giraffe? Like we're talking about 20 giraffes walking around like there's nothing. You don't ever see that anywhere else. And I think when you see that, you're so in awe that, and you're so busy taking pictures that you, you don't think about doing anything stupid. That's just mind blowing. So you have elephants and giraffe. Did you have any animals out there that were predatory or, or especially? Dangerous? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we saw a bunch of lions, and uh, and the lions are, are funny because you know everybody kind of tiptoes around. You know, the whole king of the jungle thing is a real, it's a true thing, right? Um, and everybody, including the guys, and including everybody, you know, in those camps, um, everybody tiptoes around where the lions, because that's what everybody wants to see. You know, like people that go to a safari that pay you know, 15 grand for the week, which is what the bush camp uh, was. That's what they want to see. They want to see the big five, which is uh, lions, hippos, rhino, elephants, and then jaguars. I mean, they, they, uh, they want to see a leopard. They want to see that. Uh, so everybody kind of, and all, all the guys kind of radio each other. So, okay, you know, lions are here. Why don't you guys come your way and all that. Um, but first of all, you know, the bush was really, really dry, and it's really the color of the lions. So you don't see them until you're, like, right next to them. Oh, that's good. That's very reassuring. Like, yeah, and you're like, oh, crap, you know, because then it's like, oh, look at that. There's a pride of lions there in the shade of a tree. And, uh, and then we were asking the guide, you know, is there a way that if, you know, we're in the truck, we're safe, you all feel really safe because they never attacked um a truck ever it's not it's not happened in the history of the company there okay when you say you know what if we get out of the truck is you're dead like and immediately immediately and then you know somebody said you know is there a way we could escape that it goes no look at the size of the paw which is the side of my head you know and um they said no you're, you're you'd be considered food you're in the truck you're good you're on the ground you're fair games and so I think that that's something that's really sobering really quickly because they look like cuddly, beautiful, big cats, you know, and then you realize that those are killing machines. Yeah. And then we saw, there's a couple of photos that I have, you know, that I took about, you know, there's a little one of the cubs who's got the head of a deer in his mouth and he's oh, walking no. around and then you see the horns and all that. It's the funniest thing ever. But then you realize that that thing just got killed. And so this is a real National Geo moment. You know, I mean, these animals are killing every day to feed their pride. And so I think that there's an element, of, an element of danger there that you don't quite realize because you feel really safe in the, in the truck. You feel really safe with the guides. And I think that the, the story that they give you is, is one of caution, but then at the same time, you, you feel like you're in a magical place where all these things happen that you've only read in books or you've seen on TV. So it was, it was fantastic. Does the Bush Camp Company tell you much about the poaching situation going on in Zambia and what are they doing to uh, impact that in a positive way? Yeah, the, poaching is such a weird subject. Um, you know, like I said, I, I was kind of a two minds with that. And I think that everybody there is also of two minds with that. Because within the community, uh, every community is there, whether it's the large village or a large community that can be upwards of 2,000 people there. Uh, within those communities, they have rangers and they have poachers, and sometimes within the same family. Um, wow. there's, a, there's a documentary that I, uh, that I saw when I came back. It's called Two Horns. And it's, uh, it's an American filmmaker that made it. And it's about this family where the two brothers, one is a poacher, the other one is a ranger. And the ranger at the very end ends up shooting his brother, uh, who's a poacher. And so the animal rights people have a very distinct view of what that is. You know, they're saying, you know, animals should be preserved at all costs. And this is barbaric and all of that, which, you know, we all think it's kind of true. You know, like, listen, nobody wants to kill a giraffe. Mm-hmm. Nobody wants to kill a lion. You know, I mean, it's just like so beautiful. But the other side of that coin is also a reality is that those poachers take those and they sell them to the black market anywhere. And the black market will give them money that's going to feed their family for a year. 
uh, because you have, if you have a moral objection about what these animals represent, which I think is, you know, once again, the majesty and the beauty and all of that, you know, in some other way, uh, a lot of the people there, that's their only source of having a way to making a life or feeding their family or surviving. I mean, the word surviving is really, you know, is appropriate. So it's not a black and white issue. There's a lot of gray there. Um, poachers are looked at in a weird way. And, but then again, you know, some of them are part of their families. So I think that they, uh, they know it's happening uh, in Zambia, in the preserve that we were, which was about, I don't know, like probably, eh, probably 5,000 kilometers, 5,000 uh, uh, acres or so. Um, hunting is prohibited. So it's only a photo, which I was really happy about. That's good, but but there's a weird reality when you're at the airport and you see, you know, people come down of private planes, you know, private jets, and they have long cases, and you know those are gun cases. Yeah. And so you know there are a lot of people that go there strictly for that, and they, those things are sold out. Like they can't, you know, they can't even. There's a waiting list for those trips. Talk about like big game hunting trips. Right. Right. Is is the ideal situation in Zambia though that there's a balance where poaching doesn't have to exist so these people somehow are are making money for their family they're able to feed their family whether that's off of ecotourism or, or some other thing um and, th and therefore poaching is not necessary yeah i, I think that there's certainly uh, you know what <laughs> uh, and i'll say something that's probably not politically correct but from the white people that's pretty much our thoughts right yeah, uh, there's, there's because we're removed from it, right? Like, it's, oh, we'll just make this happen. Right, you're completely removed, and, and it goes to, uh, uh, it's worth mentioning that the Bush Camp Company is owned by uh, a couple of white people who are very lovely, and they're in the community and all that, but it's still a, kind of a different perspective if you've grown with plenty, yeah. as opposed to when you've grown with nothing, and you have to survive every day. Yeah. I think that that's really where the line gets really blurry is that, you know, if you have a thing about, well, poaching is not necessary because there's other ways, and then they say, okay, well, that's great, but what are those other ways? We don't see the money here. There's no water in our village. We have no clothes. We have no food. We have no, 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 no. All of a sudden, somebody said, well, if you kill, uh, I don't know, a lion, you know, that on the black market will get you $3,000. It's going to feed you for two years. Guess what? You're thinking about it. Yeah, and I think it, that, it becomes a it becomes something that might make you change your current perspective and your current character traits. Yeah, I think so. I think that you know you realize also that you're only we're a small cog in this whole machine, and I think that the, the cycle between you know what's on your table and the way it's been provided sometimes we don't really think about it because you know we go to the grocery store. <laughs> Or, you know, in these days, we go to the grocery store not very often because apparently we're going to be barricaded in a minute. But, um, yeah, apparently. What? Yeah, but you go, you go to the store and you get what you need. There's no such thing over there. And I think that that's really the difference. I think that brings up a good point. And, and if you guys want to take a deeper dive in these issues, um, the last episode where we go to Djibouti, uh, we do explore some of the economics of pirates off the coast of Somalia. Why do they exist? Um they exist because the fishing grounds were overrun. There was no fish, and so the fishermen became pirates to feed their families. Um, and then we also have uh, an episode in this season in Uganda uh, at a rhino rescue facility where they're daily on the front lines uh, with armed guards and patrols and people on horseback combating poachers. Um, oh, I'm sorry. That's in South Africa. Yeah. So... There's a lot of sides to, to this coin, um, and I, I think Eve is right. It's sort of like, from an American or a Western perspective, we, we look to technology as a fix, and we say, oh, I have this idea that's ecotourism, which, by the way, is working in a lot of regions around the world. Oh, absolutely. Uh, it, it definitely is working, um, but can it work quickly enough? And at what point does the poaching become unsustainable so that you're making more money uh, as a safari guide than you would for killing the lion? You know, 
you need to t- make more money taking Eve to take pictures of this animal than you would by shooting and killing it. And is that happening? I don't know. Yeah, I think it's going to be. I think it's going to be an ongoing debate for quite a while. I think if you think about how long those uh, those resorts, you know, quote unquote, have been in place and the amount of money that it brings in terms of tourism, and then you kind of wonder, okay, where is that money going? Right. You know, because I mean, it's really like I said. I think a week at Bush Camp now is probably fifteen grand or so, and it was packed. By the way, it was completely sold out. And um, and so you're thinking, okay, well, well, guess where that money is going? I mean, it's it, it's capitalism. It's going back to the people that own it, and which is, you know, that's how it probably should be. Uh, but at the same time, I think that there's there's uh, there's a view that you get once you're there, and then you've been to Africa. You know how that goes. There's a view that you get when you're there that it, it's hard to understand. It's hard to understand and. I think we're going to touch on that in a second about the juxtaposition of clear wealth and abject poverty. Yeah, uh, because it, they're it, right there parallel when you're at they, this they live They live side by side, and, and, and it's really it's something that it's some, something that people don't, some people that don't think about that at all. It's just there for a vacation, and we're going to go see some animals, and then come back home, and then we're going to go back doing our life. Um, I think that uh, as a journalist or as a writer, as a, uh, as a um, purveyor of memories, that's why I like to call myself something. Oh, that's, you should put that on a card, <laughs> a purveyor of memories. Purveyor, purveyor of memories. Um, I, I looked at things a little differently, like you do and like all the journalists that we know that do this for a living. We looked at things from a different lens. And I think that that's to me, that's what, you know, what happened to me there. I think there's something to be said um, for not only traveling for the sake of travel, but travel for the sake of learning and exploration. Um, and you might not be going into the remote reaches of the Amazon and charting the course of a river that, you know, somebody hasn't seen before firsthand. Uh, but you can still explore and, and learn more about the areas that you're in, even if you're going to a, a re- all-inclusive resort. So to Bush Camp Company's credit, uh, they are using some of their profits to feed local schools. Absolutely. Uh, they're helping to clean water. They're doing a whole lot of things there uh, that you can probably shine a light on. Yeah, the, um, they take a ton of their pre-profit uh, money and really reinvest it in the community that are next to them. Uh, as an example, you know, they, they really are part of the uh, water uh, effort over there to create wells for those communities to get clean water, which, you know, if you know anything about, you know, third world country, uh, clean water is the one of the number one pro- uh, problem there. Uh, it's not a given that the water is going to be clean. It's not a given that the water is going to be healthy. And also it's not a given that the water is going to be there. Uh, so they're really leading the effort in the region into creating uh, those wells. And so if you think about a well that, a well cost about $7,000 from conception all the way to reality. Um, you think that it would be an easy problem to solve, but then I was kind of quickly educated on the idea that it's not the seven grand that's the issue. It's the way it's getting done. And there's a lot of, you know, and sadly, there's a lot of corruption into um, the lower level of governments there. It's not quite sure where the money is going to go. So, What's happening with the resort is that they go directly to the village, hire their own contractors to make sure that that gets done properly. So they're uh, cutting through the chain. They're trying to cut through the chain, and because if not, it, you know, sadly, local governments in Africa are probably some of the worst in the world, and uh, and it's changing. I think that that you know you don't want to paint the region with a with a brush uh, because I think it's unfair. Uh, but there's still a lot of those problems that happen. Yeah. And um, I think that, you know, to, to look at this with a blind eye, uh, blind eye would be, you know, naive and, and, and kind of stupid at the worst. Uh, but but they're, they're making an effort. I think that that's the thing. They, they really involve the community. They, uh, and the community love them, too. I mean, they, because they're in there every day. It's not just like, well, once a year we're going to have a telethon. And we're going to give you some money and have smiling faces and have people sing for their dinner. Uh, it's not. It's not that they're really involved in the community as a whole. 
they're really making efforts to um, to become a part of what those villages are, which I think is not always an easy thing and an easy task. Um, I know that I, for myself, I, 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 it, I think I write something in the piece, and I think that's my introduction to the piece by saying that this was not the story I was going to write about, because I was going to go there, and you know, as my, as my first time to Africa. I was going to write about this wonderful luxury resorts and all the amenities and the thread sheet count, which, you know, got, <laughs> yeah, thread now, sheet count. right now it's just so silly to think, you know, and, yeah. and all the amenities and the wonderful chefs and the food and all that, which it's sort of like fun. lifestyles of the rich and famous type. Correct. And that was my, it was going to be my piece. And then, you know, and first of all, I'm not that kind of writer. And, and then secondly, I have this weird uh, level of indignation for injustice really quickly. And so the minute I got to the village, and then you, reality just hits you right across the face. It's, you know, you see a lot of, I mean, there are no roads, they're, they're, the houses, I mean, first of all, it's a generous term. Uh, there are huts, and if it rains, during rainy season, I can't imagine that those things survive, and most of them don't. They got to be rebuilt every season. Um, and you see a collection of people with no shoes and dirty clothes and, you know, uh, there was one kid who had a Black Sabbath T-shirt, you know, which you know Respect. I can imagine. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I can imagine I got there, but you know, and, but it, it's it smacks you in the mouth when you get off the truck and you see the kids just running at you. And for those of you who've never seen me, I have tattoos. My own, I've got sleeves. My arms are covered with tattoos. So the kids were really like touching my arms, I'm really curious and- Oh, that's cool. Um, they wanted to know what everything was. Or... Right, you know, but in the midst of absolute poverty, you know, uh, they were the happiest people that you've ever seen. There was a smile there that melts your heart and makes you want to cry because you, you, you realize that the things that we hold in the high esteem, the roof above our heads, the food that's in the fridge, the car that we get into to get somewhere and the discretionary income that we use to, to do anything here. Um, it's not the reality. The reality is, you know, a clean glass of water is a prize. Yeah. It's, it's not a right and it, it's a privilege. And so their happiness is based on, on real shit, <laughs> you know, it, it, and you, you realize that pretty quickly in that, those visits. I think that's something that's super prescient right now because as we enter this COVID-19 crisis to sort of bring everyone back into the to reality, um, a lot of us here in the States are very scared, um, very anxious, freaked out because we're losing jobs. Uh, we think we're going to lose the roof over our heads. We think we're going to lose the car in the driveway. Um, and the reality is that unless something is done on a, on a, scale that's never been seen in our country before that could very well happen to millions of people i think at least according to what i've read um, but what you're saying is that there's there's actually a level of happiness that is almost hindered by all of these things around us um not to make light of losing things like that but no. to say there is a light at the end of that tunnel and if you are on that road and if you are afraid and scared know that at least i find that in these times the best parts of humanity also come out you know well, i think it's, i think it's really true I, I think that um in the midst of being amongst those people you realize that the things that we that we attribute in terms of what happiness really is, it's almost like false idols. And I don't want to, certainly don't want to preach, you know, about anything like that. Yeah. But I think that there is a, uh, there is a sense that maybe we can do it less and maybe we can do with, with uh, uh, some adversity and to see how we come out at the end. Because I think that the, that the people over there um, do with much, much, much less under very different circumstances. And, but there's still a level of optimism that I saw that, uh, that was touching and it was moving that changed me. Uh, I think this trip, you know, changed who I was. And it, 
it gave me a different perspective. It made me appreciate the things that I have here, but also I think it made me change the way I want to do things here as well. Uh, and so it was a weird thing of, because I write, I mean, listen, you know, let's not kid ourselves. I write for a luxury magazine. Yeah. And, you know, and that we do talk about the latest, you know, Bugatti and, and the Ferrari and the $30 million mentions here and there. Uh, what it did, it made it really hard for me to write about those things uh, because they meant kind of nothing when I came back. And so it took a while. And I think I'm still, it's funny because it's been about a year now or so, year and a half. Um, I'm still in the middle of that. I'm still in the middle of, I think we talked a little bit about that when we were in Northern California, that, you know, how do we, how do we as, as writers, as purveyors of memories, um, how, do, how, how, do we, how do we change perspective and really give uh, what we do in a way that people can uh, learn things and be educated about things and can be um, uplifted by the way we ride, as opposed to just like years, you know, the latest Ferrari is two hundred twenty-five thousand yeah. um, dollars. I think that that that's what the trip did in essence for me. It just changed the way I looked at things. It, it seems to me, from from a writer's perspective, that it created a more rounded version of yourself um this happened to me somewhere along the way and i can't even pinpoint the moment that it happened but i just came off of a, a similar type trip where i'm in a five-star resort uh, and i'd done like back to back all over the south pacific and i came back and i think i realized like hey man look you know we you and i have these opportunities to do things that are life-changing for a lot of people. Um, and for other people, who, the, the guys who own the Ferraris and the, the girls who own the Ferraris, like, yeah, whatever. It's just a weekend, right? right. I'm in Zambia. Okay, cool. Uh, next week, I'm take my jet and go to St. Bart's. Okay, cool. Uh, but for the people I grew up around in, and, and probably yourself as well, it's unfathomable to, to go to Zambia and go on a safari. Like, that's totally crazy. You know, to go to St. Bart's and hang out on, at a resort and be on a, a million dollar yacht that's like nothing compared to all the other yachts around it. That's that's freaking mind blowing. And I felt an obligation, as I think you do now, to sort of turn that spotlight, not totally away from from the reason I'm on the trip, but shine in on what else is going on so that we don't have a sort of narrow view of the world and that that light is, is a wider beam than just a single, you know, ray shining on one thing. Yeah. I, I think that, that the obligations that we all have to report things accurately as well. I think that that's another um, part of it that I wanted to write about what I saw, not what I thought I was going to see. And, and I wanted to be, uh, you know, I think that's the first time in my life that I felt really as a reporter as opposed to a writer or a journalist or anything else you want to call me. Um, I felt it was my duty to report you know, what I saw in a way that people could say, wow, okay, this is really happening. You know, this is not. And, and, of course, it does, it comes in comp complete conflict to what the magazine is. And... And I know there was some eyebrows raised when I turned in the piece, and and because I'm the executive editor of the magazine, you know, the content is pretty much uh, I, I give the okay to whatever gets published. Um, so I felt pretty confident that the piece was going to be the way I thought it was going to be. But uh, there was some eyebrows. Some people asked me about it. So well, you didn't talk about the thread sheet, you know, count. Um, and I just realized that I really don't give a crap about that. You know, I. I, I <laughs> You know, I mean, I, what do you want me to say? They were nice sheets. You know, I, I you know, ultimately, right? I mean, yeah. there's nothing else to say other than that. They were nice sheets. It was pretty comfortable. Um, and the juice was fabulous. But, but the trip was not about that for me. It was about looking at a place that you don't only, you only see in, in accounts in the movies or, or in documentaries. And until you, I think, I think until you, you're there personally, you experience it. It's really hard to put in words. And I, I was hoping, I hope that my piece really kind of did it justice. 
Did you get any feedback on it? Oh, yeah, I got a ton of feedback on it. Some people, you know, literally somebody said, you know, so what about, you know, the beds and were they comfortable? And, and you know, and I remember, and that's a good friend of mine. That's hilarious. And I remember saying, like, listen, you, you need to read the whole piece and make you some notes. And then maybe I can go one on one with you and then we can kind of do a, a review of the piece because I, I don't know. If you, read, if you read the entire piece, you'll realize that the thread count sheet is, has nothing to do about anything. Um, but yeah, some people, but a lot of people loved it. Uh, I think a lot of people uh, felt that it was some, a piece in the magazine that they didn't expect. And it was one of the first article in, in Nobleman that was more than 3,000 words. Uh, because, you know, the magazine is not known for their long form essay journalism. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's known for like, quick bits, you know, and, and things that, you know, funny titles and quick bit of information, which is nothing wrong about that. I mean, the magazine is, is great. And I, you know, everybody really likes it, uh, but it's really not what I do. And, and so I want to be able to tell stories. And I think it was the first time that we really kind of told the story from a personal point of view. There's a photo in the piece, and I'm going to put a link to it up in the show notes because this is now migrated to the Nobleman Magazine website. So you guys can actually go read it. Um, but there's a photo here that I want to conclude on. It's a picture of this bright glowing sun kind of streaking down what looks like uh, a wet, like a river plane or something. And there are people gathered around in like little camp chairs. What is that scene? That scene is uh, every night. First of all, they take their cocktails very seriously there, um, which is, kind of funny but, but this it really is a place is. i support now <laughs> yeah no, exactly I, yeah i don't care about the thread sheets but the uh the cocktails is serious yeah the cocktail is serious and so every night at sundown they have what they call the sound downer and uh but it's it's really in a way that um you've kind of never seen before like it, the uh, first of all that river that you see there in that piece it's probably, I think, a mile away from the main resort. Uh, but that's also where crocs are. You know, you at the distance, you, you see some crocs, and you're like, okay, well, we're going to sit in the water? What's going to happen? And, you know, it's totally safe. But they come in, and they serve you very proper British cocktail. Uh, you know, Surrounded all by crocodiles. Crocodiles and gin and very strong cocktails. So... Every night we're all a little bit buzzed because I mean, like I said, they take their cocktails very seriously. And uh, but it's it, there's a feeling of peace when you're sitting there. The sun slowly goes down. You're in the water, and then the sounds of Africa. You know, I mean, Toto's made a living writing a song about that. And uh, but the sounds are different. You know, the, the sounds of the animal and the brush and the, the wind and everything. Um, but that's how you know most of our nights ended with a cool, fun cocktail, and to be able to kind of chat and reminisce about the day. Lasting impressions of Zambia. I'll go back. Would go back. Uh, I'll go back, and, and only I want to go back. But uh, I, I do want to follow up with uh, with the village. I want to follow up with the education initiatives that are there. I think that uh, I talked to a couple of people about doing uh, a documentary about you know the state of affairs there in terms of what education is and um and how can we help and and the efforts of other companies to really bring that to fruition so i will be back we'll look forward to it eve tell everybody how they can follow you online and how they can connect with nobleman magazine you can follow me on instagram at uh, at y l e s i e u r so that's my Instagram handle. And then you can go on the uh, uh, on Instagram for the magazine. It's Nobleman Magazine. And you can go to noblemanmagazine.com, uh, N-O-B-L-E-M-A-N magazine.com. And uh, most of our pieces are on there. And, uh, and um, if I can plug it for a second, you can subscribe to it as well. It yeah. makes good reading when you're in quarantine, by the way. 
Yeah, I'm already into this. Uh, your piece is the, f- the first one I've I've dived into there. But I, I mean, hey, I'm into Ferraris and stuff. I don't own one. Well, there you go. You know? I mean, but by the way, you know, just as a note, there's nothing wrong about any of this, right? I mean, the, we all enjoy a nice car and a good watch and all of that. But I think that there are other things in there that uh, that I think are worth kind of talking about. Yeah, very cool. Thank you so much for sharing your experience. Joe, that was my pleasure, and and I meant what I said when we were in uh, having too much wine up there. Uh, let's find a way to work together. We're gonna make it happen, man. Thanks so much. The Get Lost Podcast is a production of the Sold Outside Exploration Company. Follow us online at Get Lost Podcast on Instagram and check us out, soldoutblog.com.